If you're a regular Geeks Guide to the Galaxy listener, please rate and review us on iTunes or using the podcast app on your phone. We currently have 986 five-star ratings, and it would be great to get that up to 1,000. And so I want to give a special thank you to Physics Bill, who just gave us this five-star review. Geeks Guide to the Galaxy is one of my favorite podcasts, and my very favorite that discusses fiction. But really, it's so much more than that. David Barkertley is immensely well-read, but the podcast isn't just about obscure sci-fi literature, though there's plenty of that. It features lots of group discussions of books, movies, TV series, and more. And the guests invited to lend expertise are themselves oozing with bona fides. Whether you are a true devotee or a dabbler, you will find a lot to love about this podcast. So big thanks again to Physics Bill for that great review. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 481 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is David L. Craddock. He's the author of the fantasy novels Heritage and Firebug, and he's also written over a dozen books about video games, including Beneath a Starless Sky about the making of Baldur's Gate, and Stairway to Badass, about the making of Doom 2016. And we'll be speaking with him today about his book, Stay a While and Listen, Book 2, about the making of Diablo 2. And this is a follow-up to our interview with David back in episode 397, in which we discussed Stay a While and Listen, Book 1, about the making of Diablo, and Rocket Jump, about the making of Quake. So definitely check that out if you missed it. And now here's our interview with David L. Craddock. All right, so we're here with David L. Craddock. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me back. I've been looking forward to it. Okay, so Stay a While and Listen Book 2 contains this quote from Time Magazine. Diablo 2 is arguably the best role-playing game of all time, the best dungeon crawler of all time, and the best PC game of all time. So what do you think about that? I think that would be a hard argument to debate. Yeah, um, uh, Diablo 2, in my opinion, is... Kind of a quintessential PC game, although at the time of this recording, we're about a month away from it um, being on consoles for the first time. So we'll see how it makes the translation there. But as far as the best action RPG, I think it is still unsurpassed, in, in my opinion. it uh, There's so much uh, decision-making, control over your character's abilities, and it's just so timelessly addictive that, in my opinion, it has not been surpassed. Yeah. And I have, uh, I would say I have pretty extensive knowledge of role playing games up to and including Diablo 2. Mm. And then after that, pretty sketchy because I've been too busy since then to, uh, to play a lot of RPGs. But, uh, and certainly if you're talking about best action RPG, uh, I can see that uh, a real good case for that. When you talk about best role playing game of all time, I have to say, I mean, my, um, <laughs> I'm still very fond of Ultima 6 and 7. And, I don't know. I feel like a game like Diablo that's so focused on combat compared to something like Ultima, where there, you know, there's this whole world. You can go anywhere in the world and talk to anyone, and there's hundreds of NPCs and and all this kind of stuff. I don't know how I feel about that. Yeah, it's it's really tricky. I, I agree with you. Technically, like this is where, especially, I spent so many years writing reviews and previews that. Um, it's one of those careers where you start using a lot of jargon and debating the minutia of arguments because just because you're so entrenched in it that on the one hand, I, I agree with you. I think when people think role-playing game, they think of a really deep story and character development driven RPG, your Ultimas, your Mass Effects, your Dragon Ages. On the other hand, like all games are role-playing games, right? People have been using that excuse for a while. Like you're playing a role in every game, but if you want to stick just to RPG as a role-playing game, Diablo 2 succeeds at making you feel fulfilled by playing your role, which is a badass who is just mowing down <laughs> monsters on every inch of real estate on your screen. Like, that's the role that you're playing. The funny thing is, I, I like to say that in Diablo 2, your character's name isn't really their name. It's more your file name, because it's not like anyone ever uses your name. It's really just a, a placeholder for the type of build you're working toward. So... Yeah, like if we're going to wade into the weeds of subgenre, I think Diablo 2 is definitely still the best action RPG ever made. But even that definition has been 
has undergone some changes in recent years. Like technically souls games are action RPGs and they're not, you know, isometric click, click driven games like Diablo. So I will say like this, I guess for the Diablo style of action RPG, Diablo two is still the best. Yeah. And I mean, like if I were going to give a game to somebody to try to get them interested in RPGs, yes. I mean, there's no no comparison between Diablo 2 and something like Ultima. I mean, it's it's just way more accessible and you know, it's way easier to get into. Yeah, I mean, I I know I talked about this in the first day of Wild and Listen book. I can't remember if it came up in book two, but Blizzard North had a criteria for game design, which was that your mom should be able to sit down and play it. Because back then, I mean, everybody plays video games now, but back then they were still largely the territory of 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 teenagers, you know, 18 to 35 range. And the idea that anyone, no matter how skilled they were at, at gaming, could sit down and really you can play Diablo and Diablo 2 with one hand, just use the mouse and you can do everything you need to do, is still pretty cool. I mean, uh, I, I had a similar experience to you. Diablo 2 came out about three weeks after I graduated college. So it's really become kind of a swan song for that period of my life where as much as I did enjoy role-playing games as well, I just got too busy to spend 80 hours on something where I'd have to think a lot about the placement of my party in dungeons for tactical battles and remembering the story points. Uh, I got to the point where sitting down and just clicking through waves of monsters was what I was looking <laughs> for after a long day of college and then later writing. So... So do you have any, are there any particular memories of playing Diablo 2 that kind of stand out for you? One of my favorites, which I didn't share and they won't listen to, because as you know, I don't include myself in the narrative. I do kind of a third person omniscient, just keeping you rooted in the quote unquote characters, the developers. Um, I got to visit Blizzard North about one week before Diablo 2 went gold. Um, my uncle, uh, Brad Mason, who's mentioned in the book, um, was he didn't work there full time, but he was a client. He provided a lot of IT solutions, particularly in networking. And my graduation gift from him and my Aunt Cindy was to come out and stay with them for a week. I've always been very close to my Uncle Brad. He's a father figure to me. And as part of that, he took me for a, a visit to Blizzard North. We got to hang out for a few hours. I got to play a Japanese import PlayStation 2 about two months before they came to the, the United States. And... um I got to stand around with a bunch of the developers who were kind of ragging on StarCraft 64, the age-old argument of how you got to play a, a real-time strategy game on a controller, which I still agree with. Um, but John Morin, one of the programmers on Diablo 2 and a friend of my uncle's, uh, took me into his office. He, he loaded up Act 1, the rogue encampment town area, and he spawned Diablo in town. And Diablo started running around and killing all the NPCs. <laughs> and that was that's, that's one of my favorite memories because it's a memory that no one else in the world has. And, uh, I guess second to that, this happened just about five or six years ago. I actually came across a stone of Jordan without having to manipulate the game to give it to me. I still have that character. I pass it back and forth between all my characters, but I actually got my own stone of Jordan, no manipulation. I'm proud of that actually. Wow. I mean, when you talk about, uh, Diablo two kind of being your swung song for RPGs, I mean, yeah, it was for me. Cause it was, I think that was around the time I started college that I, that it came out and um you know so um i wanted to play it when it came out i wanted to play it with my my two best friends from high school who we all played all the games together and so and and i wanted to play it three player co-op and so i got you know I, I hooked up two computers with serial cables and one of my friends brought over one of his computers and then i went to the mall and i bought three copies of the game and they were all like you know sixty dollars a pop or something <laughs> so this was a major outlay of time and resources and so everyone comes over and we just could not get it to work. You know, I, I spent hours trying to get a three-player co-op game going, and it just would not work. And I'm like, I don't understand. Like, I had this all set up last night with Diablo 1. I'm like, look, and we start up Diablo 1. It works just fine. I'm like, I don't understand what's going on. And finally, we, we realized that they had dropped IPX support between Diablo 1 and uh, Diablo 2. Yeah. So there was no way to get it going with serial cables. <laughs> and so, like, we never had the chance. I'm still like furious to this day that we never had a you know and then obviously like a week later everyone had already played through the whole game you know so yeah we never had that chance to to play it fresh together uh, that's a three-player game that's too bad maybe you can do that now when uh the remaster comes out in september yeah 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 so like you said that's about a month away so right. uh, yeah and that's why i'm talking to you now i, I was like okay you know anticipation is high for some <laughs> more diablo too this is the yeah. time to talk about it mm-hmm 
Um, but you've been working on this book for, you've been working on this series of books, I guess I'll say for 10 years, right? Um, yeah, actually probably about 14 now because the idea, I got the idea in 2007 when my wife and I moved out to the San Francisco Bay area. That's where I met and befriended, um, Eric Sexton, Mitch Yokmora, Kelly Johnson, and John Morin, who um, worked for another game development company at the time. And I met them through um, getting a job as a contract writer. Uh, our job was to, uh, we were reworking Hellgate London, um, which, you know, was not well received on its initial launch. And uh, I was I was rewriting the entire game, all the characters, quests, um, item texts, that things of that nature. And I got to hang out with them. And that's where the Stay Wild and Listen series started. I started doing interviews, started doing a lot of research, outlining. And, um, you know, there's, there's usually a several year gap between the books. I think book one was 2013 and then book two, 2019, because, uh, they're so intensive that I like to take a break and write a lot of other stuff in between. So I've already had people ask me, Hey, when's book three? And <laughs> I have no idea, probably at least a few years away. <laughs> Was uh, was was it different writing book two from writing book one? It was. So originally, Stay Well and Listen, I envisioned it as a complete book. And then after kind of pulling my hair out over it, never... 1,000-page book? Yeah, exactly. My wife was like, you should split this up. And I said, yeah, but I don't know how to, to split it up. And she said, well, maybe three books. There are... You know, there, I don't think Diablo 3 had even been announced. Or no, it had. They announced it in 2008. And she said, well, what about a trilogy? And I said, okay, one book for each Diablo. Does that make sense, though, other than just by the numbers? And I thought, well, you know, it kind of does, because each Diablo was made by a very different type of Blizzard team in a very different era of not only Blizzard history, but industry history. And um, writing Stay Well and Listen to was different in that way. I had a lot more developers to balance. There was a lot more going on at Blizzard North, a whole lot more going on at Blizzard Entertainment, which the Blizzard South folks called Blizzard, uh, the Blizzard North called <laughs> folks called Blizzard South. Um, there was just so much more to juggle in terms of timeline, in terms of game. I mean, I think that a good 10 chapters in Stay Well Lesson 2 focus on Diablo 2's development. The game was just that massive and things happening within Blizzard North and Blizzard Entertainment culturally were so important as well. It was it's just a much bigger undertaking. And I think also tonally it was different. Um, I know some reviews, people who liked book one, some people who didn't said, oh, this book is just all sunshine and rainbows. And I said, well, yeah, that's the point. Sunshine and rainbows defined Diablo 1 for Blizzard North, a.k.a. Condor, as the company was known at that point. It was all very... Um, it was difficult work. They crunched on that game, but they were a small company that found themselves suddenly flush with resources. They were all friends, and Diablo 2 came around, and that's when things got a lot more complicated. And I think yeah, no two, one is going to call book two Sunshine and Rainbow, it's, so it's, I'll tell you that. It's definitely not. I mean, things got a lot more complicated wading into that time period. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's like a Shakespearean tragedy, <laughs> book two. That's how I would, what it, I, how I describe it. I think you're right. I mean, I've had you know a lot of people... Who I interviewed for that say they they still haven't recovered from a lot of things that that happened during that era. It was a big deal. It impacted a lot of lives. In the uh, in the end notes, you say uh, much of the information in this chapter comes from internal documents and assets shared by Blizzard North developers under condition of anonymity. Mm-hmm. So that sounds very uh, a cloak and dagger there. Yeah, you know, um, I have a lot of design documents from a lot of games, a lot of studios, most AAA, and so you never want to like kind of advertise that you have that stuff or more importantly to me with my journalist background, reveal my sources um, just because I wouldn't want to get them in any trouble. But even right, right behind me on my blizzard shelf, I have stacks of design documents and printouts and folders and stuff that, that no one's ever seen. So I drew a lot from that just to get things like dates and, and game designs and stuff as accurate as possible. Was, did people just, were people like just throwing that stuff at you or did you have to like wheedle and cajole to get, access to, to any of that stuff first the latter than the former as people got to know me i was very touched that they they said they liked talking to me they actually felt pretty good kind of unburdening themselves of a lot of these stories i was a good listener um which is a fine line to walk like you don't want to become friends with with folks even though i was friends with some of them but you know journalistic integrity has to remain paramount but after they 
kind of grew comfortable with me. They said, you know, I have a lot of stuff. It's just kind of gathering dust here. Um, and they would, uh, one guy shipped me a, a box of design documents. In fact, right now I'm working on a trilogy. Um, a publisher signed me to a, a three book deal f- to write books about the Mortal Kombat franchise. And I have a guy who worked with Mortal Kombat, um, licensing the franchise for years, shipping me a box of stuff from his studio in Hollywood. He said, he's not going to tell me what's in it, but I'll like it. But that's kind of one of the, the fun parts of this job, being a fan of the games that I write about and getting to see all this cool stuff that nobody else has probably ever seen before. <laughs> well, so let me just, I guess just, I'll just explain for people who don't know this story at all, mm-hmm. which I didn't know. I didn't know any of this. I mean, really, I mean, I kind of knew that, um, that Diablo 2, that the team that made it had kind of like tried to make a, a follow-up and it had, had never come out. And then that Diablo 3 was made by like basically a different group. That was sort of my understanding going into this, but, mm-hmm. but I didn't know any of, any of the details that are in this book. So I'll just explain that the story basically is that um, Blizzard North makes Diablo 2 like the greatest game of all time, basically, <laughs> and um, are crunching on it for 18 months. And it kind of like, you know, working around the clock on it for 18 months. And it basically like destroys their health, relationships, finances, like everything. And then um, uh, then there's a period after, so after Diablo 2 comes out and it's this, you know, phenomenal success where they're kind of like, everyone's completely burned out. They're trying to figure out what the follow-up is going to be and nothing's really working and everyone's just totally blasted. And a lot of people are just kind of sitting around not doing anything. And then there's this, what I I have in my notes marked is the game of Thrones period where (laughs) there's all this like backstabbing and factions and, uh, and and ultimately the company sort of dissolves in, in spectacular fashion. Um, do you do you agree? Do you agree with that? Is that basically the the arc of this book as you see it? Yeah, really. I mean, you can kind of see it happening as you read. Like, I, I devoted ten chapters to Diablo two, not only because the game was that big, but just to show in book form the amount of time and effort that went into it. Ten chapters is a long time to spend on kind of one period, but it was that intensive and that involved and almost everyone I talk to kind of looks back on the post Diablo two launch with regret with one exception. Um, Diablo two launched on June 29th, 2000, one year later to the day Diablo two Lord of destruction, the one and only official expansion for the game launched. And, you know, Diablo two is great. Lord of destruction made it even better. And everyone who worked on Lord of destruction considers it the high point of their time at blizzard North, because again, for that year after after Diablo II's launch, when a lot of other people at the studio, most of the rest of the studio, was just kind of drifting and getting very frustrated and very burned out, uh, the Lord of Destruction team was really living every game developer's dream. You have a successful product. You have a pipeline in place that you can use to make more content for that product. You've already gone through the labor pains of putting all the stuff in place. Now you can just create more stuff. It happens so fast. And that's what creative people love to see, right? The hardest part of creating is the creating itself. Uh, it's I for writing. I kind of um, for me, it's analogous to you want to you want to sculpt something from clay, but first you need to actually make the clay. That's the hard part. Then comes the fun. And uh, yeah, I mean, really, you hit the nail on the head. It's just the company just kind of goes downhill from there. And, and as I said, most people I talked to said it's we we had all this time, we had all this money but we were so burnt out. We should have done something. And yet what could we have done? We were just all on our butts, just so tired from Diablo two. Yeah. And I mean, you know, as a kid playing these games, I mean, I just thought, Oh, Blizzard, what a great company, you know, it must be so fun to work on games like this. And like every game they make is so great. And I mean, think like reading this book and thinking about it, I mean, like, I'm not really that into um, real-time strategy games. So, I mean, I, you know, I played Warcraft 2 and I enjoyed it. But, you know, when I think about it, so much of my, uh, you know, high regard for Blizzard is because of Diablo and Diablo 2, right. which were basically made by almost a separate company. Um, yeah, I, I think I think that's totally correct. I mean, the thing is, and one lesson that I that I try to impress on on readers without getting too preachy about it is that Diablo one and two were great because of the contributions of both companies. Blizzard North kind of provided the style, and Blizzard Entertainment provided the polish. That's one reason 
that Diablo 3, despite launching to rave reviews and just astronomically high sales, people kind of soured on it after the first, I think, one to three months or so, realizing like, hey, the real money auction house where you have to spend real money to get items kind of sucks and and crimps the hose of of item drops, which is the the bread and butter of, of that style of action RPG. It really took both companies. And sure enough, Diablo 3 course corrected when it became a little more like Diablo 2, but also kind of doing its own thing in some ways. And uh, that's why, you know, if you if uh, if you look at any previews, any coverage for Diablo 4, I think it was announced maybe two years ago at this point, um, Blizzard Entertainment, the only Blizzard still standing, has said, yeah, if you love Diablo 2, you're going to love this game. Like, I, I kind of joke, and it's it's derivative, and I'm only really, like, half joking, but Diablo 4 to me is like Diablo 2.5 in a good way. They're, they're going back to what worked and trying to build on from there rather than trying to, you know, assume they could do it all and kind of fall on their faces and have to backpedal on a lot of stuff. Yeah, but the, the sort of the analogy that occurred to me reading the book is that Blizzard Entertainment was kind of like Disney, you know, very corporate and very family friendly and, and very, you know, competent. Uh, and then Blizzard North was like a heavy metal band where they're like a lot more edgy and interesting, but also seriously lacking in organization and, and structure. Yeah, you could even like take that analogy further. If Blizzard Entertainment was Disney World, Blizzard North was the county fair. Like it's definitely <laughs> you don't have those. There's iconic characters there, but it's definitely kind of faster, looser, and freer in a way. But you really need both. If you, if you want that fair to get bigger and draw bigger crowds, you, you need a little bit of corporatization, as much as I hate to say that. Like, you know, Dave Brevik and Max and Eric Schaefer, the three co-founders of Blizzard North, said time and again in our interviews, like, we wanted to be part of Blizzard because they had... They had, they built the runway so that we could fly our plane, right? Like they had the, the distribution, the packaging, the marketing. They had all that stuff down. Blizzard North could just focus on, on making a great game without worrying about all the other stuff because they knew that the home office, so to speak, would take care of it. Yeah. And, and Dave Brevik uh, in the book comes across as just an incredibly interesting character. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, there's almost like, it almost seems like a cult of personality around him at Blizzard North, one of the, Developer says, "If we'd had our like Blizzard North money, it would say in Dave we trust." On it. <laughs> it's one of my favorite quotes. Yeah, um, yeah, he very much was, and that's you still get that, although it happens less today because, especially in in AAA or big budget game development, teams now are are dozens, if not hundreds, of people. So there's usually not one visionary. I mean, you have someone like the the, the people on the tools team are just as important as the like, you know, 50 to 60 artists that you have, because without tools, the artists can't do their thing. But back in, in Diablo Tuesday, you know, Dave Brevet came from a period where programmers did everything. You know, he started out making his own games. He wrote the code, he did the graphics, he tried to, to sell them to magazines and whatnot. And he was the person who was considered the idea guy. Everybody kind of sat around, literally or figuratively, waiting to see what what Dave was going to give them in terms of direction. When you, when you, I mean, I, I guess you've interviewed him a lot. When you talk to him, do you, um, does he seem like a, like a visionary? Do you see why people were so kind of, um, were, were deferring to him or so, um, you know, mesmerized by him or whatever? I do. And uh, it's, it's funny. Um, I did most of my interviews with Dave in person. He's one of my favorite people in the world. Um, we, we took a liking to each other. Our interviews would start where I would meet him at Gazillion. He was uh, running the studio that made Marvel Heroes at the time, which I got to do some writing for. And um, we would walk three blocks to a Starbucks and just talk about whatever. Um, I, th- I remember once, uh, shortly after Super Mario, New Super Mario Brothers Wii came out, uh, he came up with the term divorce mode for the multiplayer. Because, you know, in that game, you can have up to four players at once and you can like pick each other up and throw each other at Goombas and into pits and stuff. And he said he and his wife have fun, but they also get frustrated with one another because you can advertently or otherwise hinder each other's progress. Then we would get to Starbucks. We would order and we'd talk for a good hour, hour and a half until he had to get back. On the back, I would just hold my, I used the digital recorder at the time. I would keep asking him questions, just kind of take advantage of every second. Um, and I think one of the reasons that he really does seem like a visionary to me is that he doesn't hold anything back. He's very blunt. His candor 
is so important for someone in his position. When he makes a mistake or when he made a mistake, uh, you could ask him there, like, hey, Dave, do you think you screwed up? He'll be like, oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, he came up with the term, I, I think I even used it as it's just chapter title, Seagull Management. He was one of the people most burned out by Diablo 2 because he put so much pressure on himself to succeed. In fact, it was kind of controversial because near the end, he kind of checked out. He was playing a lot of a lot of EverQuest. A lot of the other developers who were still kind of burning the midnight oil were were upset with him. But, you know, his, his marriage was falling apart. He put a lot of pressure on himself for both games. He just kind of needed to check out mentally. Um, but he, after that, when he and Eric were trying to co-lead a team of what was known in the studio's Project X, he said, yeah, I was a seagull manager. I would stay home for most of the time. Then when I would come in, I'd crap all over everything, squawk a lot and leave. And he, he said that, you know, that's his, by his own admission. And so I have a lot of respect for people who kind of put the truth, the creative truth ahead of, ahead of their own ego. Uh, Dave and Max and Eric can do that very well. But Dave, I think was, probably the most straightforward and just saying like, Oh yeah, you know, I really screwed that up or, well, I disagree. I think I did a good thing here and here's why. Yeah. Yeah. You get that in the book totally that he's, he's really blunt. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, and yeah, really sort of tells you what's, what's really, you know, it gives you the straight, straight talk. And I mean, one thing I thought was so interesting about this book is I didn't expect to learn so much about business and management reading a book about Diablo too, but I feel like this is a book that, you know, anyone interested in business or, or management should read because often, you know, sort of uh, case studies of what not to do. But um, but but you, you really learn a lot about about the business. And, and so so one of these sort of um, blunt Dave Breffitt quotes I wanted to mention is um, he says, uh, what we all didn't realize at the time, and it took me years to figure this out was that the people who make the money on anything are the people who put up the money for the thing. The people who are risking the money get the payoff. That's the way all business works. And so, you know, you had these people who were just busting their butts on Diablo and Diablo 2, but they were employees. Mm-hmm. And they're not the ones who are going to be huge winners if the game is a big success. Yeah. And even there, I, I asked Dave about that. I said, you know, I asked Dave and Max and Eric. I said, you know, a lot of people felt that you made them them promises, whether explicitly, tacitly. And they said, you know, what we, we tried to do to do right. Um, you know, what happened with, with Sendent, their parent company at the time, cooking their books and, and tanking the stock of everyone at Blizzard and other companies that Sendent owned from really high to almost nothing was not Dave's and Max's and Eric's fault. But this is, this was one of the hardest parts of the book for me to reconcile for, for a number of reasons. Um, I, I have the sort of personality where I, I kind of like everyone I talk to, especially if they open up to me. And I think that's human nature. If you feel like something, if you feel like someone is being honest with you, you kind of take a shine to them because honesty is, I think, increasingly rare in this age of the internet where people can hide behind keyboards or touch screens and say and do anything they want with seemingly no regard for the feelings of the people on the receiving end. Um, and I, I felt of two minds about that quote from Dave and, and that attitude. On the one hand, I agree as an entrepreneur myself. You know, I'm a hybrid author. I've self-published a lot of books, including Stay Well and Listen series. I've also uh, gone through traditional publishing. My Mortal Kombat book is with a traditional, a larger publisher. And so I, on the one hand, I feel like Dave is right. On the other hand, it's a very capitalistic view that increasingly, given the events of the world, I don't know that I entirely agree with. But I think that's kind of what I where, where I wanted to stay well and listen to to end up. I didn't see it as my job to say, here's what I think about everything, and so here's what you th- should think too. I wanted to present all sides, cross-referencing to, to weed out as, as many um, untruths as possible so that you could get it straight from everyone I talked to. And for you to kind of also maybe have mixed feelings about it, because I'm sure one people sided with you know, the three bosses, as Dave Max and Eric were called. And I'm sure a lot of readers will also side with the employees. Me, I kind of see from both sides. And I think that if, if people sit back after Stay Well, Listen to and really think about it, I think they probably will and maybe even should as well. Well, I mean, it was impossible for me not to think while reading this, like, God, if, if Dave had just not bought any Ferraris, how much drama could have been avoided? You're, you're absolutely right. And, you know, he wasn't, I mean... You know, Eric bought a nice car. Uh, Max and Eric went in together and, and bought a house. And here's here's the thing where I kind of understand where they're coming from. I have um, 
I've, I've been where they were. I've, I've been really low on money. I've had to go hat in hand and ask people for help. Um, when you go from that to suddenly having a lot of money and suddenly being able to finally relax a little bit, that tightening in your chest finally loosens and you have the freedom to maybe not go wild, but maybe go, you know, like Dave's a car guy. I'm not. My first inclination, if I were to have millions of dollars, would not be to go buy a bunch of Ferraris. But Dave loved cars. It's something he could never afford. And now he can. I think a lot of people can relate to that because it's kind of inherent in the American rags to riches story. But that's not to say it's necessarily the best thing to do, even if you're able to do that. Yeah. I mean, and, and I never knew, you know, I knew about this Sendint scandal. This was the biggest, my understanding is the biggest financial scandal in American history prior to Enron. Correct. Um, where they just, they, they just reported $500 million worth of profits that didn't exist. <laughs> yeah. And I, I know that this brought, I knew that this had brought down Sierra and mm -hmm. I hadn't realized that it had also struck this mortal blow to, to Blizzard North. How much um, how much different do you think things would have been at Blizzard North if not for the descendant scandal? Night and day. Um, there were some people and, you know, um, I, I won't name any names. People can go read the book if they really want to know. But as, as Dave said, there were certain employees he, Max and Eric talked to who never seemed satisfied. Even when keep in mind that after Diablo 2 came out, Blizzard's bonus structure was such that the Blizzard that that made and released the hit game got a ton of bonus money and the other Blizzard got some too, because Blizzard was one big dysfunctional family. They, you know, David and, and Max and Eric were handing out bonuses, royalty bonuses a few times a year. Uh, each bonus several times the, the amount of that person's salary. I mean, six figure bonuses more than once a year. And there are some people who were never satisfied. So I think that there will always be some grievance because they, you know, those people, believed in the cult of personality and they said, okay, well, you're giving me this, but I was promised this too. Um, on the other hand, if most of the employees, especially the long timers who had been there in the trenches with Condor working on console games and working on Diablo one, uh, and two, you know, sacrificing so much of themselves personally, if they had been able to cash out those stocks, uh, I think that they would have probably the majority of them would have been a lot more content. Maybe they would have felt that a lot of what they went through was more worth it than they do now. Yeah. Well, and let's, let's talk about what they, what they went through. So just a couple, a couple things like apparently when you started work at Blizzard North, they told you like, hope you don't have a girlfriend cause you'll have, you know, she'll dump you given the hours that you'll be working Here's your sleeping bag because you're sort of expected to sleep on the floor because uh, oh, yeah. you're never leaving the office. Um, the the thing that really has stuck in my mind is is one of these these people says that he uh, after after a couple months of this crunch of working around the clock that he would go out to a restaurant with his wife mm. and just like couldn't make sense of the menu. His brain was just so fried, and and he would just have to hand her the menu and say, you know, you're gonna have to order something for me because I just. I can't process it. I can't like think or make decisions anymore. Yeah, that was, um, you know, people to this day have told me that, that Diablo 2's crunch was the worst they ever went through. The, the girlfriend quote was uh, part of the culture of Blizzard uh, Entertainment, although it definitely applied to both. The sleeping bag was Blizzard North, although that applied to the other Blizzard as well. Um, another quote, I, I can't remember it, so I, I won't even attempt to paraphrase, but, you know, came from Max Schaefer, who told me that, you know, they would do things like cater dinner, not only because it was the right thing to do, but also because they wanted to give people as few reasons to leave as possible. <laughs> and that that's the thing, right? Like, it's not my job to judge Max or anyone for that. It's just my job to kind of tell this story, which is what I love to do, and let the readers decide whether it's good, bad, or in between. I feel like it's in between because it's just... It's, it's so capitalist, right? It's so like, I'm going to give you a really nice meal so that you don't have to go out to get a meal. And that way you can even maybe ideally work at your desk or take an hour to eat and then just, Hey, you're already in the office. So just get back to work. Um, that, that sounds nice. A lot of people, I would say most people work at places where they don't get food catered every single night. 
But also, like after a while, the office is not your home. You miss your home. You miss your bed. You miss your significant other. You miss your friends. You miss your favorite TV shows. Actually, watching them uh, live with the rest of the world—that's they. These people sacrificed a lot to make this game. Yeah. Um, so then we get we get into the the Game of Thrones section of the book, mm-hmm. where yeah, I, I guess you know the company just they say it got too big, you know, uh, and all these these factions forms and and everything. Are there any uh, anything from that Game of Thrones period that kind of sticks out? Sticks yeah, out for you. I would say definitely the growth of the company with all these different factions. You know, you had your your Lannisters, your Tyrells, etc. To to keep with the Game of Thrones um, analogy, uh, that really stuck stuck out to me because it was just kind of a shame. I feel like that wouldn't have happened nearly as much. It, it happens in every industry still, but I feel like if you have people who are motivated and excited and busy, but motivated and excited about what's keeping them busy, they have less time to you know, kind of politic and, and stab each other in the back. And um, I, I would say really what bummed me out the most was every time the Project X team hit on a concept that Dave seemed to like, that Eric seemed to like, that the, the team seemed to like, they would get excited about it. And then, you know, Dave, Eric, or both would kind of change their minds and say, nah, this isn't working. Let's do something else. Or so, you know, the, the final form of the Project X took was a game that they jokingly referred to as Starblow. Now, Blizzard Entertainment didn't find that funny at all. <laughs> but the Project X team at Blizzard North called it Starblow because of the idea was, oh, it's Starcraft and, well, Diablo in space. You know, Diablo, but science fiction. And um, there were a lot of people who were like, okay, well, we have a direction now. That's great. But we just made Diablo. And the whole reason we're on the Project X team is because we're sick of Diablo-style games. So at least we have a direction, yay, I guess. I just felt that it was it was um a bummer that that no one you can't please all the people all the time, but it, it felt like you couldn't even please most of the people some of the time. And I thought that was too bad because it's only in retrospect uh that you realize maybe how good you had it despite all the bad stuff going on. Well, they were in a really tough position because they you know had had put all this time and effort into making a 2D Diablo style game mm-hmm. and then they're all sick of that but that's what all their expertise is in so it's it's a really tough transition from there to to just do something completely different after that that's actually one of my favorite subjects in the industry to talk about you have certain designers who become synonymous with a certain type of game and that happens in other creative fields you know Stephen King just released a, a great book called Billy Summers. It's not a horror novel. I didn't really know that going in. I buy all of his books sight unseen. I have almost all of them in hardcover. And Billy Summers is more of a thriller. I loved it. I think it's one of the best books he's ever written. But also a lot of people, it's kind of like when um, uh, John Grisham writes one of his sports novels. People are like, oh, I want a legal thriller. Whereas other people are like, oh, I'm so sick of his legal thrillers. <laughs> um the, the the thing is, it's it can be hard to break away from what you know you're good at and what you know will be successful. I think that's where a lot of the people who, a lot of the employees who weren't necessarily married to the idea of making Diablo-style games grew frustrated and kind of said, you know, Dave, Max, and Eric are good at this. I kind of get that, but I don't want to do this. But at the same time, you know, Dave, Max, and Eric uh, were very candid in saying we didn't really leave a lot of room for growth for other management positions at the studio because we didn't want that. It was our studio. If people really want to do that, they can leave and go somewhere else. And they didn't mean that dismissively. And that's one of those situations where I kind of, I saw where they were coming from, but at the same time I saw where the employees who were frustrated and left were coming from. And even today, I feel like there's something to that. Um, You know, Dave, Max and Eric, their most successful games have been, Diablo and Diablo style games, such as, such as Torchlight. Uh, Dave might be the exception. Well, actually, they all, they, they all are, um, you know, Max before Runic Games closed down. He helped work on, uh, it was called Hob. Uh, Eric Schaefer and Travis Baldry of Double Damage Games put out a lot of, um, space Han Solo rogue type games, which are, which are fun. And Dave did, um, It Lurks Below, which is, uh, it's more of a, a 2D side-scrolling roguelike, but it still has Diablo elements, so he didn't stray too far from from the game that kind of made him. But um, it's a it's a really interesting thought experiment. Even at Midway, Ed Boon after Mortal Kombat 4 
one of the reasons there was about five years between MK4 and 5 was because Boone was sick of Mortal Kombat. He went and made a first-person, I think third-person maybe, style shooter uh, called The Grid, and it didn't do very well. And so he went back to Mortal Kombat, which I think he was planning to do anyway. But it just kind of shows, like, you kind of feel for people who, yes, they're really good at something, but they're creatives. They don't want to just reinvent the wheel over and over. But can they? Should they? Should they just kind of stick to what they, they know they can do well? It's uh, it's an interesting thought experiment for me. Well, like one of these games, one of these Project X games that they tried to do was this dragon game where you would be flying around in a dragon and you would have guys with uh, gliders sort of riding along on the dragon with you. And then they would jump off and glide over to enemy dragons and, mm-hmm. you know, try to you know take them, you know, land on them and take them over. That sounds amazingly cool to me. I have a really hard time imagining that gameplay really actually working, but it's... um. It's a really cool idea that I've never, I can't think of any game like that that I've ever seen. That's kind of how I wanted you to feel reading that part, because a lot of the people working on it couldn't imagine it either. And that the the part of the, the Greek tragedy of that part of the story is that, you know, at that phase, they never got a chance to find out. Maybe it would have worked, maybe not. But there are certainly people on the on the Project X team who were passionate about giving it a shot. And it never really got far enough for them to to do that. It never really got too far beyond design documents and concept art. I mean, one thing that killed that game uh, you, you talk about in the book is that a, there was apparently some contingent that just didn't want to play a girl, especially a girl, you know, character having uh, romances and stuff. And there was, that was apparently enough, caused enough, uh, you know, a, a, enough conflict to, to sort of scuttle the whole project. Yeah, there was, it's certainly, I don't know if it was the, the last nail in the coffin, but it's certainly one of them. And, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. The industry still has a huge problem um, with misogyny. Yeah, well, um, I mean, one of the other things in, around that same part is there's there's an employee watching porn on his work computer at work. And I think it's your uncle, right? Has to tell him, like, you're not allowed to watch porn at work. And the guy's just like, oh, this is so unfair and and just <laughs> is angry about it for, for months. Yeah, I think that is part and parcel of working for a company, not necessarily working for Blizzard, but working for a company the size of Blizzard, how successful they were. I mean, keep in mind that, you know, between Diablo and Diablo 2, Warcraft 2 and Starcraft, they had games in the top five, top 10 bestseller charts every month. Money was just rolling in. Um, and even though not a lot was happening development wise at Blizzard North, um, you know, they, these, these folks were still most of them anyway, kind of flush with cash and a sense of entitlement can certainly build there. And that has not gotten any better at, at Blizzard Entertainment for those who have followed, um, that controversy for the last month, month and a half. Yeah. I, I don't actually know a lot about that. I just saw like a headline or two yesterday, but I, I guess I'll wait for, uh, Stay a while and listen book four to find out about that. <laughs> if, if that's the case, I, I will not be writing it. Third, three will be my last one, but uh, <laughs> we'll see what happens. Did you ever think while you're, you're hearing all these stories, like what if you were working for Blizzard North at this time, like what, what faction you would have been in or how you would try to survive? Or did you ever spin out that, that sort of uh, scenario? Yeah, I, I, I think that... Not only as a huge fan of the company have I thought about that, but also as a writer, like getting to talk to people who represented all these different factions, I couldn't help but try to identify them, even if I didn't really want to. Um, I would, I would probably have sided. I think I would have had one foot with the the veterans and one foot in with. Um, some of the, the new blood, like, like Tyler Thompson, Phil Shank, who are like, look, I'm sorry for what you went through, but I'm, I'm young, I'm hungry, I'm ambitious, I'm going to do this because that's kind of my personality. And I, I'm not entirely comfortable with that, but, um, I'm, I'm someone who puts his head down and pushes to get things done. So that's probably the direction I would have gone. Right. So, so at the end of this book, there's this really dramatic, it has this really dramatic ending where, um, the, the founders who are all in charge of the company, um, the company is like being sold around to different, to different larger companies. And, and they say like, we really need to have more control over our destiny. And so they all threaten to resign or they basically all hand, hand in their resignations as a group, uh, as a way of, uh, getting leverage to negotiate for more, uh, uh, you know, managerial authority over, over over the direction of the company, 
And then their parent company kind of calls their bluff and basically just fires them all. And that's sort of the, uh, you know, that that's pretty much the end for Blizzard North. Um, and then like every, you know, then, then um, sort of Blizzard South comes in and kind of like, you know, fires a third of the people or something and, and brings two the thirds. ones that they, yeah. they fire two, thir- two thirds of them yeah. and then bring their, the survivors like eventually down to, to Blizzard South. Um, but the, but the, the thing that really, uh, the, the quote that really sticks out to me from this is, is this, this guy, Fred Vaught, and he says that he just was like trying to keep his head down and do his work and not join any of the political factions or get involved in the drama or anything. And then when the company dissolves, then he has no one in his corner because he's just kind of been off on his own. And it kind of makes you think like, oh, yeah, if you're in this kind of situation, you might not want to be involved in the the politics. But are you making yourself vulnerable if you don't get involved in the politics? Yeah, I felt bad for Fred, who I also worked with uh, down the line um, in the industry and um, and other people. You know, he didn't he didn't play politics and who wants to really? Uh, but then when he did, he kind of ended up, um, no, he tried to. <laughs> and by that time, the factions had formed and the wax had hardened and there was, there's no breaking through. And, um, it's, it's just really too bad because Fred is someone who is, uh, who's a very hard worker who I, I wanted to focus on. So, so when I tell these stories, I like to talk to as many developers as possible rather than just the names people associate with games. Because you have people like Fred Vaught who, you know, yes, they made a lot of the treasure chests and the banners that you see flapping in the wind in Act 5. And that might not seem like a big deal in and of itself, but they add so much personality and style to the game. And they often don't get a spotlight. And so that's something I, I try to, to give them. And it's really too bad when you see you know, this big company not understand their worth. And really that was partially, I would say, Dave's, Max, and Eric's fault as well, because one thing I discuss um, a great deal in book two is how, you know, Blizzard North didn't want Blizzard Entertainment, the much larger company, uh, coming in and telling them what to do. And so Dave, Max, and Eric shielded developers, their developers, from the other Blizzard. And, you know, that's something that, on the one hand, a good manager does. You know, if you're working on a game and you're not management, the last thing you want to do is worry about, oh, hey, are, are we going to get paid? Or I hear we might be sold, or I hear this might happen, These, this other arm of our company might come in. You don't want to worry about that. And you don't want, you know, the managers don't want you worrying about that. They want you working. Um, but the downside of that is that if and when those managers leave and a new regime comes in, they don't know you. You're just another face in the lineup. And so they have no problem letting you go. And that's too bad. I mean, one of the things I thought was so interesting is, yeah, you have these guys from Blizzard South, and it seems like a lot of them, you know, they, they really knew that Diablo was the cool property, the, you know, the, the, the one that they wanted to, you know, they had like StarCraft and WarCraft and maybe by this time World of WarCraft and so on. But like they, they knew that Diablo was, was really the cool one that they wanted to work on. And um, one of these guys, Dave Glenn from, from Blizzard North, he says, some of us got the sense that they were swooping in, you know, a little excited. You could tell they were like, Diablo's ours. The Precious is ours now. Yeah, um, certainly. Uh, Chris Metzen was one of those. I don't think he had any, you know, ill will or machinations. But Chris Chris felt a sense of ownership over Diablo's world, and I think rightfully so. You know, Blizzard North, I talk about this in book one and two, they weren't really that interested in in story as a studio. They're much more interested in, in the gameplay side of games. Um, Chris Metzen supplied a lot of the the lore, the character backgrounds, and the connective tissue that that brought the Diablo universe to life. That kind of gave you motivation to run around and hit all those skeletons and, and fallen goblins and, and, and so on. In fact, I mean. You know, earlier I said it took both studios. You know, the Diablo 2 cinematics, those were developed at Blizzard Entertainment. They were completely separate from the development of the game itself, separate from the game itself. They were they followed other characters um, who you were kind of chasing all the while. And that was set up because the two studios didn't really communicate, and uh, the cinematics kind of do their own thing. And it's just it just kind of shows you just how, you know, people get their own motivations, want to do their own thing, and a lot of times it does contribute to the overall quality of the game, but it can also lead to this 
sense of, of disconnect that can come back and haunt you, such as, you know, near the end of Stay Wellness and Two, when this the big parent company kind of takes over and says, okay, we don't know who you are, but we're going to make decisions that affect your future. Yeah, well, and, and I, I, I've always loved that first, that opening cinematic in Diablo 2 so much. So it was mm-hmm. just kind of interesting to read your book and see, yeah, that was basically done by a completely separate group and the, the people who were really making Diablo 2 were kind of like, eh, whatever, we don't care about, you know, we don't know, really know or care about this, these cinematics. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think that even a lot of the, the Blizzard cinematics team, which was still pretty nascent at that point, they said, you know, oh, we're kind of, we have, uh, we're envisioning submitting this for awards and stuff, which I don't know if is the right motivation, but they created a great little almost side story. You could play Diablo 2 without watching any of those cinematics and, and still not miss a beat because one of the, the beauty, the beauty of Diablo 2 is that you don't have to pay attention to the story. You can just kind of click through and focus on the loot. Um, those games are inherently replayable. Each time you play, you, you pay attention to the story less because it's just old hat by this point. And <laughs> that was actually one of the problems with uh, Chris Metzen taking such a prominent role on Blizzard Entertainment's Diablo 3, the version that eventually came out in 2012. The story really got in the way, and that's a mistake that Blizzard North never would have made. But it happened. I mean, one thing I thought was so interesting was that, you know, th- there was pretty serious technological limitations at this time. And so so you say that, you know, in the in that opening cinematic in Diablo 2, that, that the characters are all bald, pretty much. And that's just because it was like too hard to render hair. So they're like, we're just gonna make everyone bald. And I never, <laughs> I never even really thought about that or noticed that before. But but that was a really interesting background detail. Yeah, I, I, that's one of my favorite uh, quotes as well. Uh, my favorite parts, it was one of my favorite parts to write, because I never would have thought that either. But it really fit like most of the places the characters in Diablo 2 frequent, especially in that first cinematic, are really kind of rough and tumble taverns where, you know, you have the kind of the working class peasants who are wearing rags, have no hair because they've probably been through uh, figurative hell, if not literal hell, Uh, not all of them anyway. And uh, it kind of fits stylistically. And I think that's why that's why I tend to write a lot about games made in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s. I'm not really a nostalgic person overall. I reflect on things, but for other reasons than just kind of pining over it. But I love to write about creative people who had big ideas, but very, very tight restrictions. And I think that from that comes from, you know, some of the most enduring products, most enduring experiences uh, ever made. And those little touches, those little workarounds to technical limitations, um, or fuel for that fire. Yeah, just this thing too about how uh, so there's an area in Diablo 2 called the Arcane Sanctuary where you're kind of walking around in these these stone walkways that are just kind of floating in in outer space mm-hmm. and there are these stars in the background and it was apparently just the background the star field background from <laughs> Defender which is this like really primitive like 80s <laughs> uh, arcade game and it was just placeholder art and they just never had time to do anything else so that just shipped with the, the defender starfield in the game yeah it's really hilarious and that that actually is not uncommon in the industry i've talked to a lot of other people one of the one of the ways you get a proof of concept up and running uh, especially because you've been influenced by another game and you want to make one like it is you will kind of uh reverse engineer that game grab some of their assets and put something together cobble it together really just to, to get something up and running so that you can show the higher ups hey here's what i'm thinking um, and it's hilarious that they kind of forgot they used Midway's Defender Starfield. Like, it's one of the most successful arcade games of all time, like 88,000 cabinets. And whoops, the background is in Diablo 2, like to this day. It's hilarious to me. But apparently nobody, like, did anyone ever notice that? Like, No, because, like, the interesting thing about it is that wasn't the main fixture. Like, your eye, you take in the stars, but you're also just kind of taking in the forest instead of the trees. Like you're looking at these, these winding pathways and the optical illusion of, of how it looks like you're going up and down stairs, which was something Dave Glenn came up with, but you're really not. It's kind of like you're taking in the whole scene, not focusing on the stars. And also like, it's just a scrolling star field, right? Like unless you knew it was defender that could have come from anywhere. It could have come from a screensaver from the windows 3.1 days as well. Yeah. 
Um, so yeah, so, so you mentioned that, um, that the Diablo two resurrected is coming out, which is going to be on, you know, it's like a high def remaster on PC and console and everything. And you mentioned that there was a point at which, um, all the original art files for Diablo two were lost. Um, so, so basically they had sort of the, you know, the exported low resolution or like game resolution sprites and everything, but all the original source files were all lost. Mm -hmm. Um, so, I mean, do you think that that ever would have been used or would they have re would they have redone everything for Diablo Resurrected anyway? I know that they, so that, that's a good question. I think they probably would have redone a lot of it. The interesting thing about Diablo 2 Resurrected is that it is a true, it's more of a remaster than a remake because with the press of a button, you can revert to the original art style. But I know for a fact, and anyone can read this, uh, they did a, Blizzard did a lot of previews and interviews when it was announced, I think a year or so ago, whenever it was, that like, um, they were never really worried about Blizzard North having lost all those files because, you know, Blizzard South had a lot of archives and backups as well. But things do get lost over time, even at bigger companies. So what a lot of the artists had to do is go around and say like, hey, what do you have from Diablo 2? And, you know, one guy was like, oh, I think I have like, an awning from the Diablo two or the act two town, the Luke Galane. And he was like, okay, cool. I'll use that. I think that probably something like that would have ha ended up happening regardless, especially if it stayed the direction that it, we ended up getting, which is where with the press of a button, you can switch between the new and the original graphics. What that means is that the underlying code blizzard entertainment either had a complete backup of that um, no, in fact, I'll, I'll say they must have had a complete backup because that would have been very, very difficult to recreate without changing a lot of the fundamentals uh, of that game. So I think it would have turned out the way it looks to have turned out either way. I mean, the Diablo 2 Resurrected, I think I saw, is not developed internally at Blizzard, right? It's a third-party contractor? Or? That's another yes and no. So the company that was given that was vicarious vision visions uh before diablo 2 resurrected they did um the tony hawk one plus two remaster uh, that's a remake i guess but um blizzard acquired them and said hey we need a diablo 2 remaster you guys are gonna do that and so it started off external but now they are part and parcel of blizzard and so it's actually in-house uh, that's interesting because I saw I just saw like a YouTube comment where somebody said like uh, I'm I'm really psyched for this but it's it's kind of weird that you know the the thing I'm most the, the Blizzard product I'm most excited about is is like sort of a third party remaster <laughs> of a 21 year old game. You could definitely still look at it that way, but if you consider Activision Blizzard is so big, they own so many external parties. Their their tools come from everywhere, not just in house. No Blizzard game is is truly a Blizzard game anymore. It's uh, it takes a village these days. <laughs> the other thing I wanted to ask you about is, you know, I like I said, I haven't followed RPGs that closely since since Diablo two. But just as I was doing research for this, I just happened to catch some gameplay footage of Path of Exile, mm -hmm. and it looks like a, an exact carbon copy of Diablo. <laughs> I mean, like you would think it was a Diablo game, if you know. And, and it's just it was just striking to me that. That, that that Diablo two has been um, yeah just copied so shamelessly or uh. no I, I totally get that I mean uh, the the cool thing is like Path of Exile uh, is popular for two reasons one it's free to play and the game is so deep and robust that having something like that as a free experience is is pretty phenomenal two people love it because it is like Diablo two but even deeper. Like Diablo three came out and at first was very unlike two and it still does its own thing. Uh, and you know, somewhat successfully, somewhat not depending on, on what you look at. Um, but it's, it's cool that path of exile exists because people who want a Diablo two like experience have options. They have path of exile, uh, torchlight two was very similar to Diablo two and in, in much the same way that the original torchlight kind of followed in the original Diablo's footsteps. Um, even, you know, Dave Max and Eric actually went to, I think there's like a yearly path of exile convention. And a couple of years ago, they actually went and were like guest speakers there. So like, they're pretty happy to see, uh, part of their legacy, their torch being carried by someone else who, who appreciated it as much as they did. That's interesting. Yeah. That's reminds me when you say that of, uh, of what happened with Dungeons and Dragons where fourth edition came out and then a lot of people felt it was, it had made too many changes. And then 
There was the Pathfinder game that was based on the 3.5 edition rules that was sort of like, you know, no, if you don't like these all these changes, we're like branching off another thing that is going to stick closer to the way you liked it before. Yeah, which is which is really that that sort of um, that sort of sequence of events benefits everyone. It uh, creates more jobs for people who want to create something awesome and create something similar to this other thing that they love. And it benefits players because you can either, you know, follow the new, you know, keep up with Dungeons and Dragons or, or try this other thing that is more along the lines of Dungeons and Dragons as you loved it back when, um, you know, really there's nobody loses in that situation. Yeah. I also, I just wanted to ask you in the, um, you know, at the, at the back of the book, it has a list of all your other books and everything. And it says you have an upcoming book called Stairway to Badass about Doom. I was just wondering what's uh, what's the status of that. Oh yeah, so that was actually published um, on Shack News. You can read it right now for free. In fact, so at, at Shack News, one of my freelance jobs is long reads editor at Shack News. And what that means is they basically pay me monthly to write books for them. Uh, Stairway to Badass was one of the first long reads I did when I actually it was the first long read I did as long reads editor before I did one on Tomb Raider. But um, what that does is it looked at the the making of Doom 2016, the reboot from a few years ago, and also kind of goes back and looks at elements of the original Doom, such as its weapon balance and its map design. Um, and, you know, I've done a lot of other cool long reads uh, that you can read for free on Shack News, Stairway to Badass, and other long reads will be published. Uh, Shack News actually publishes them for me. We split the profits, there are the royalties. Um, Rocket Jump, you can go uh, pick that up or read that for free on Shack News. That's the story of the making of the Quake trilogy and kind of the 90s era of FPS games as a whole. Uh, Beneath a Starless Sky, which is about RPGs in the vein of, of Baldur's Gate. And the the focus of Beneath a Starless Sky is actually the Pillars of Eternity 1 and 2 games by Obsidian. But since so many people who made those either helped make or were inspired by Baldur's Gate and Icewind Dale and Planescape Torment, I wrote about the making of those games well, and it's all like together in one like 280,000-word book. I forget what it was. Um, but yeah, it's it's really cool. I, I love doing that for Shack News. And you know, you can read those free on shacknews.com or go pick them up from, from Amazon. Yeah. Yeah, no, those are, that, that's all really cool. And, you know... Um... It might, it might get mentioned in the intro, but last time we spoke to you, which was episode 397, uh, we talked a lot about Rocket Jump, about the about Quake and, and associated topics. So. That's that's right. Actually, I should throw in, um, uh, just last month, there was a, a Kickstarter campaign for a documentary called FPS First Person Shooter. I was a producer on that. I'm now directing it. Um, it will tell the story of first person shooter games from the 90s, a concentration on the 90s and early 2000s, but that enters into production in a few weeks. So we'll have something else to talk about uh, before the end of the year. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think. Yeah, no, I'll definitely check that out. Cause I am a huge first person shooter fan, which actually maybe, maybe the last thing I'll ask you about here is mm-hmm. uh, there's a quake, you know, quake, you know, the old classic quake, quake one is out now for consoles and, and everything. Uh, so you said you, you played it uh, today and yesterday? Yeah, so it was uh, released yesterday as of this recording, and I, I'm really impressed by this thing. I should admit that uh, going into this, I and a lot of people were probably hoping that the id would announce a Quake reboot along the lines of the Doom reboot that they're they're working on, that ongoing series with Doom Eternal. Um, instead, they announced a remaster. So Night Dive Studios made the remaster, and Machine Games, who made the newer Wolfenstein games, um, made a new expansion pack for it. And so I kind of went into this thing thinking like, okay, well, I play Quake all the time. I've played Quake on PC for years with source ports. So I wasn't really expecting to be blown away by Quake with updated visuals. Because if you like PC games and you mess around with source ports, you've had that since like 2002 or three, probably. But this thing is really impressive. First of all, it came out the day they announced it. Second, it's only $10 on own platforms, which, you know, so often remasters go from anywhere from like 30 to $60, which is just kind of ridiculous in my opinion. But if you already have Quake for, for Steam, um, you just, you get the upgrade for free. It's just there and ready to play. Um, finally, like this, this thing has so many options. As an add on, you can even download Quake 64 and play the old, you know, N64 version of the game and its levels, how they were modified for that console. It's really, really impressive. This is a remaster done right. Um, if you're a Quake fan, lapsed or active, 
just go check this thing out. It's only 10 bucks, even if you didn't already own it on Steam or if you want it on a console like Switch or PS5. It's it's really, really good. It's solid. I, I recommend it. Yeah, I just think it's so cool that, you know, I can just um, get, you know, Diablo 2 and Quake and play them on my Xbox. It's just a lot easier. Yeah, um, uh, I, I'll probably play the Quake Remaster mostly on PC because I, I kind of ride or die by my keyboard and mouse setup for, for PC games. But I've also, like, the first thing I bought this on was Switch just because I love having these classic games portable. I have Doom 1 and 2 on Switch, and uh, Quake plays really well on Switch. Like, it's just really novel to have. I think that's the best thing about the Switch, right? Like, there's a ton of games that you've played before on console or PC, but now you can play them as they were and you play them anywhere. Like that's just really cool. Yeah. See, I don't have a, I don't have a gaming rig anymore. It's just, it got too much, too much of an arms race keeping up with that. Oh, so, I, uh, I agree. Yeah. I mean, check it out on console. Like it handles really, I've played on switch more than I have my PC so far. And I really like the console port. It's just as good as the PC port. Yeah. So if you're listening to this and you've never played Quake or Diablo 2, I mean, now's the time to try them out. These are all time classics of, of gaming. So, uh, you know, definitely don't miss them. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, Quake, Quake especially, you know, Diablo 2 Resurrected isn't out yet, but man, the Quake remaster is just really solid. So kudos to Night Dive and Machine Games. They did a, they did a great job. Yeah. All right, cool. So we're pretty much, we're out of time. Do you have any, uh, just any other final thoughts, other projects you want to let people know about? Um, yeah, my most recent long read for Shack News was published in November 2020. It's called Bet on Black. Uh, it's about Microsoft's pre-Xbox history in gaming leading up to the launch of Xbox. You can kind of see how Microsoft went from Flight Simulator to uh, earlier uh, other PC games all the way up to the release of the original Xbox. Uh, I am the director, along with a really solid team of FPS first-person shooter that's starting production in September. It'll be out uh, fall 2022. And I will have a lot more to say about um, my upcoming series on Mortal Kombat, the first book of which will launch uh, spring 2022. So if you don't already, follow me on Twitter at David L. Craddock and uh, keep up with all I've got going on because maybe you can help me keep up with it. There's a lot these days. <laughs> yeah, well, that all sounds great. So I got to go download Quake. So we're going to wrap things up there. <laughs> so we've been speaking with David L. Craddock about his book, Stay a While and Listen, Book Two. So, David, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Anytime. It's always a pleasure. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to David L. Craddock for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. All right. So that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening. And we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.